Lord, we do ask for your favor, your help. We pray the Holy Spirit would be the one doing the teaching today. I pray, Lord, that I could be used by you in some small measure, that you, your people can, can have a greater understanding, a, a more keen glimpse of what you were doing there in the first century, with the hope, Lord, that we would see you continue to do mighty things today. In Jesus' name. Pastor Brian, yes. you said Acts 20, what's the... Uh, verse 7 to 12. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, let me just throw this question out for you. Have you guys ever wondered what early church meetings were like? <clears throat> I, mean, I certainly have. I, I, thought, I wonder if our present day church meetings resemble very much what was going on in the first century, or if they were very much different than what we see around us today. The problem is that the Bible doesn't give us exhaustive details about that. We only have some glimpses. So the best we can do is gather all those glimpses together into one and, and try to build what we, to build a picture of what we see from the various parts of Scripture. So that's what I want to do today um, in hopes that if, there, if in any way we have departed from the apostolic vision, of the church, we can <coughs> move into a, a more apostolic direction. You see, a few weeks ago I went to my son's baptism mm -hmm. up in Sonora, and we went to, we, we, we observed his baptism, and then we went through the church service, and during the church meeting there was all kinds of rituals that were taking place. Um, there were various priests dressed in these really elaborate robes. Uh, gigantic crosses around their neck. Uh, he was waving incense. There was icons, which are these pictures, hanging all around the walls of various saints, the Virgin Mary and Joseph and all the various saints. Um, they didn't at this particular meeting, but my son tells me that the people will come up and they'll kiss these pictures. There was, um, when the Lord's Supper took place, when the chalice, when you go up to drink from the chalice, you were supposed to kiss the chalice and then take a drink of the, the wine. The people address one another by a new name. Whenever you're baptized in that church, they give you a new name, which goes back to the Eastern Orthodox religion. So it could be like Athanasius or somebody like that. So my son and his wife and all of their kids, they all got new names. And so people will address each other by those new names. Um, the people address the priest as father just like in the Catholic Church. I'm, I'm familiar with most of this because I grew up in the Catholic Church. Um, when, when you, throughout the service, you'll cross yourself <laughs> many times. This is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, so you do that a lot. And there's all kinds of other rituals, too. I'm just trying to hit the highlights. But anyway, I'm, I'm just trying to paint a picture of what it was like to go to this service. And what was going through my mind is, was this the way the Apostle Paul expected his churches to function. Like when he would plant a church in Corinth or Athens or someplace, was he teaching them to do these things? It was all this ritual happening. And so afterwards, during the lunchtime, I was able to sit across from, from the priest, and he was saying, boy, I bet you've got a lot of questions, don't you? <laughs> I really have a lot of questions. And I said, one of my questions is, do you really think the early churches were doing all of these things in their meetings? And his answer was, well, basically, yes. Not in their full-blown form, like we see today, but in their seed form, all of these things existed. And he said, if the Apostle Paul 
were to walk into our church meeting today, he'd know exactly what all the things were that we were doing, and he'd feel right at home with all of us. <laughs> and I, I just couldn't agree with him on that. I'm just not there yet. Because, well, my main problem is I'm a Bible guy, right? And so I'm, I'm trying to discern truth from the Bible. That Now, if you don't, if you accept that tradition is equal with Scripture, then I can see where you can come up with all kinds of things. But if you say that the Bible is our authority, well, none of this stuff is happening in the Bible. I mean, it's not mentioned. So in order to put it into the church, you have to, you have to kind of... You have no biblical authority to do so. You're just injecting it in because you think that's a good idea. But I'm afraid of human ideas. I'm afraid that we're going to add things that God may not be pleased with. It's much safer to say, okay, well, what do we find in Scripture that the early church was doing? We know God is pleased with that because the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He wrote Scripture. So that led me to think, okay, well, what does the Bible actually say was taking place in the early church meetings? Um, and this is important, I think, because I believe the apostles are much more qualified to discern what is what the Lord would want to be happening when the church gathers, than we are. We can come up with all kinds of ideas today, but they may or may not be from the Lord. We know that the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Spirit when he, when he did this work. So, what I want to do this morning is just ask some questions and see if we can find answers. So one question is, when did the church meet? Number two, where did the church meet? Number three, why did the church meet? Number four, what did the church do when it met? Okay, number one, when did the church meet? Well, in Acts chapter 7, or excuse me, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, says it's the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. So this particular meeting was on the first day of the week. Now we don't know that that was the, the normative practice. I suspect it was, but we have no proof that they will always met on the first day of the week. Um, the interesting thing is that it says in verse 6 that they, they came to them at Troas, and there we stayed seven days. You see that in verse 6? But on the seventh day, they had church. The seventh day that they were in Troas, they had church. They left the next day after that. So they were in Troas for one full week, but they waited for a, a whole week to transpire before they had their church meeting. Why did they do that? Paul is in a hurry. We know from verse 16 that he needs to get to Jerusalem in order to celebrate Pentecost. And he's not going to eat up valuable time for no reason at all. So there seems to have been some important reason, even though they got to Troas, say on a Monday, they waited for five, six, seven days on Sunday, the first day of the week, they had the church meeting. Seems reasonable to me to assume that they, they waited because that was the day the whole church gathered and Paul wanted to be there with all the church. And maybe there, it was just not possible to have an impromptu meeting where everybody could join, uh, you know, like that. So he waits. He waits until the first day of the week and then all the Christians gather together and they meet. Now, this particular meeting may not be normative because this meeting went all night long. I don't suspect every church meeting went all night long. Paul talked until midnight, then a guy falls down from the third floor window and dies. Paul raises him from the head, they go back upstairs, they eat, 
And then he continues teaching until the break of day. And this is an unusual meeting. So we, we're doing our best to gather the details we can and try to try to paint somewhat of a picture of early church life. Okay, so they met on the first day of the week. Now, we know that the Jews in the Old Testament met on the seventh day of the week. There was no command that I am aware of in the Old Testament to actually meet together to worship on the Sabbath day. But God did command them to rest, to cease from their labor on the Sabbath day. They took it on themselves to actually meet. And you know, we find them on the Sabbath day meeting in synagogues in the time of Jesus Christ. So they are assembling on that day, but the real command through the scriptures is to cease from labor, to rest on that particular day. So some people have surmised that the reason Paul is gathering on the first day of the week is because the Christians transferred the day of rest, the Sabbath, from the seventh day to the first day. you understand what I'm saying? No? Okay, they say there is such a thing as a Christian Sabbath. The Jews, the Jews had a Sabbath, and they celebrated that on the seventh day when they rested. They say when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the early Christians decided to keep the Sabbath going, but they just transferred it to the day Jesus rose from the dead, rather than keeping it on the seventh day. Are you guys following me? You think so? Okay. So, it, is that what was taking place? I know some real good Christian people believe that. Uh, with all respect to my Reformed brothers and sisters who hold that position, I don't believe that was the case. And the reason I don't is because there's nothing in this, this passage when they met on the first day of the week of resting. In fact, it seems to me that when you have a church meeting, people can't rest because people are working. But whoever's preaching is doing a lot of work, <laughs> and whoever's getting the food ready and cleaning up the meal after, after the meal that's not going to be restful. So it's very difficult to have a true Sabbath when the, the church gathers together. Um, at this time in history, Sunday was a work day. Now we look at Sunday and Saturday as like our weekend. We don't work. We just do other things. But in that time in history, that was a regular work day. And so it's no wonder that they began their meeting not in the middle of the day or in the morning like we do, but at night. Because they'd have to work through the day. After their work day is over, they can come and they can assemble together. So what I believe we're seeing here is not a Christian Sabbath. I believe what we're seeing is simply Christians gathering together and they're doing it on the first day of the week. Probably, we don't know this for sure, but probably because Jesus rose on that day. And this is a special day to early Christians. They have a resurrected Lord. And so what are we? What other day would be better than to gather together as your normal weekly celebration than this one, because you can remember Christ, that he's alive in your midst. Um, so, from the evidence we have in the New Testament, the Sabbath law was not brought over from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We have about three passages um, outside of the Gospels. In, in the Gospels, we find Jesus... Um, observing the Sabbath day with his disciples. But after he died and rose again, and the apostles wrote their epistles, we have about three different passages that mention the Sabbath. And this is what they say. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says that we are not to let anyone pass judgment on us regarding the Sabbath because it's a shadow of Christ. A shadow is like, um, it's a picture of the real thing. Right? 
if, you, if the sun's here and I'm here, I've got a shadow going over there. And if someone looked at that shadow, they could maybe get a rough approximation of what I'm like by looking at the shadow. Well, the Sabbath was a shadow that was pointing to Jesus Christ. Christ is the real thing that the shadow pointed towards. See, we are called to rest in Christ from our labors, from our works. He's the one that fulfilled our works for us. Christ's work is finished. We don't labor to obtain salvation. We rest in what Christ has accomplished through the cross. So he's the Sabbath, and we're resting in him. Romans 14.5 says that some observe one day above another. So some might observe the seventh day as a particular special day. The Jews, I'm sure, would bring that over from their heritage. Others observe every day alike. So the Gentiles coming into the church, they know nothing about the Sabbath. They never observed that before. So they just observe every day as God's day, as holy unto the Lord. And Paul says each one is to be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, it's not a big deal. You can observe the Sabbath if you want to. You don't want to, just observe it to the Lord, whatever day it happens to be. Just be fully convinced in your own mind so that you're not sinning against your conscience. And then in Hebrews 4, 9, and 10, it says, There therefore remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. But it goes on to say, Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So my understanding of that passage is that Whoever has entered God's rest, that is through trusting in Jesus Christ, you've entered into God's rest, you've rested from your works. You're not striving, working in order to obtain salvation through your performance. You are resting from your works just as God rested from his works. So these are the three major passages in Scripture. Seventh-day Adventists will want to argue strenuously if you don't hold to their position, their position is that you must worship on Saturday. If you worship on Sunday, you've taken the mark of the beast, and everyone with the mark of the beast is going to be damned. So to them, it's extremely important. They say because the Sabbath was part of the Ten Commandments, it's a moral command. If you violate that command, it shows you're not a true Christian, so you must worship on Saturday. However, if you just look at what we find in the New Testament concerning the subject it doesn't, it doesn't back up their position. It gives latitude for believers. Uh, we, we're not, my understanding is that the Sabbath was for the Jews of the Old Testament. Uh, Exodus 31 says that this was a sign for the sons of Israel forever. It was a sign of the covenant for Israel. So Israel was under obligation to keep the Sabbath because that was a sign of the covenant that they had entered into with God. But folks, we're not under that covenant. We're under the new covenant. And the sign of the new covenant is not the Sabbath, it's the Lord's Supper. So whenever we take the Lord's Supper, we are remembering again that we are in covenant with God through the blood of Christ. So the first day of the week, I don't think, became a Christian Sabbath. So believers are meeting then probably because Jesus rose from the dead. And on Revelation 1.10, when John says, when John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now what does he mean by that? The Lord's day. Well, there's two possibilities. Either he means, I was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. In other words, I was sort of transported to the day of the Lord when Christ comes back and I saw these visions. Some people interpret it that way. 
or he means I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, which would be the first day, because that's Jesus' day, because that's the day he rose from the dead. So, I personally, I think the second possibility is probably the more accurate one. It's probably the, the right one. So, here's the question. So, do we have to meet on a Sunday? If the early Christians were in the habit of doing that, do we have to do that? Is it sin if we don't meet on a Sunday? That's a better question. Well, we have no command in the Bible to do so. There's no command that the Christians must meet on Sunday. So we're not violating the command if we don't. In fact, shouldn't Christians meet all the time? A Tuesday, a Monday, a Wednesday, a Friday, whenever we can. Now, of course, we are going to have a special celebration, which we do here at the bridge on a Sunday. Um, but I, I do, since there is no command to meet on a particular day, I don't think it's sinful if you don't. Let's say you're in a particular situation where you just did not have the freedom to meet on a Sunday. Well, I think then in those circumstances, you should meet whenever you can. Whether it's two in the morning because of persecution and you don't want people to know what's happening, you might have to meet in strange situations at strange times. So, because it's, it works out well for us here, and because we have the tradition of the early church, I think it's a great thing that we're able to meet on the first day of the week. And every, every week that we meet, let's remember, hey, Jesus is risen. This is the day that he rose. So there's our first question. Second question, where did they meet? Well, in this passage, in verse 8, it says, There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. So they were in an upper room. And we know it was the third floor. So this was a interesting situation. It wasn't a single floor home. They had three stories. Eutychus falls out of the third floor and he dies, so it had to be pretty high for him to actually fall down and die. Um, the upper room, when you, when you just do a, a search in your concordance in the Bible, you find that the upper room is usually the upper room of somebody's house. Like in um, Elijah. Remember when Elijah raised that man, that little boy, to life? He took the boy and he took him to the upper room of the house that he was living in. And he fell on him, just like Paul does to Eutychus, and he raised him to life. But he was in a house. We find that the disciples observed the, uh, the Last Supper, the Passover before Jesus went to the cross, in an upper room of somebody's home. We find early Christians meeting in an upper room when they're waiting for Pentecost to happen. Again, it's an upper room of somebody's home. So what I think we're seeing here is somebody who has um, probably a business on the first floor and they built their living quarters on top of that, which was a fairly common practice in the first century. Like if you own a business, a cheap way to have housing is just to take the place where you, uh, your home base for your business on the bottom floor and then build one or two stories above that for you to live on top of. So... Here we find Christians meeting in an upper room, probably in a home, in Troas, all through the night. Is that the only place we find Christians meeting in the Bible? Well, think it through. Where did they meet in Acts chapter 2? Remember Pentecost came, 3,000 are converted. Where did they meet? You guys don't remember? Okay. 
Let me refresh your memory again. Acts chapter 2, 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house. Here we have our two locations in early church. The temple and house to house. Now we think of temple and we think of church building. People going in and sitting in pews, listening to someone preach. That's not what's going on. They were at Solomon's portico, which is a large outdoor covered porch area where large numbers of people could gather and it would give the apostles the opportunity to teach the saints not, not just a handful at a time, but probably hundreds at a time. And they could also evangelize the Jews going up to the temple at the same time. So in the early church, we have large temple gatherings in an outdoor area. Probably what's taking place there is teaching. The apostles teaching, we find in verse 42, they, um, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching, which should have taken place there. But then these other things, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, and verse 47 says praising God. These other activities, I suspect, were taking place in homes. Verse 46, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness, sincerity of heart, praising God. So praise, breaking of bread, probably prayer together, fellowships taking place. Those are taking place within the home settings. Now, after the apostles, after we leave Jerusalem in the book of Acts, we no longer find a situation like this. It's fairly unique. We find it in Jerusalem. I don't know how long it continued, maybe, maybe for decades. I, I really don't know the answer to that. But when we go to other places like uh, Antioch or Corinth or Ephesus, we don't read of these types of gatherings. We do have Paul teaching in the school of Tyrannus uh, for five hours a day for three years. That seems to be more like a, a lecture hall, not exactly a church meeting like you see described in the book of 1 Corinthians. And we do have one statement that he makes in Acts chapter 20 where he says, um, I was with you teaching publicly and from house to house. So, not sure what that publicly refers to. It could be the school of Tyrannus or maybe some other sitting that we don't know about. However, all of that aside, the, the common universal practice that we read about in our New Testaments, once we get through Acts chapter 4 or 5, is house church meetings. And let me just show that to you. Romans 16, verses 3 to 5. Paul writes to the Romans, he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. So Priscilla and Aquila had a house church gathered in their home. 1 Corinthians 16, 19. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. This is the second point. This is when they live in Ephesus. So when they live in Ephesus, they hosted the church in their home. When they moved to Rome, they hosted another church in their home. Philemon, verse 2. Paul says, To Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, 
and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So, the church that met in the home of Philemon with his family. Colossians 4, verse 15. Greet your brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. You start to see a pattern. The, the apostles did not, in, our, in the epistles, they never gave instructions that the, the new Christians should be constructing a church building. That was never given. It wasn't part of God's original blueprint for his church, for them to have a special building that they met in. He said, they were just gathering homes. That was the common way the early church functioned. In Acts 16, verse 40, remember when Paul first went to Philippi? The, he delivered the slave girl from the demon. Uh, the jailer was converted with his whole household. And Lydia and her household were converted. When Paul left there, it says, they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So Lydia's house is already the beachhead for the church there in Philippi. This was just a common practice in early, in ancient biblical history for the church to meet this way. Now we think it's crazy or strange today for churches to meet in homes, but that was just, that was the way things were done when Paul would plant his church. <coughs> Many people say, well, yeah, the early Christians met in homes because they had to, because of persecution. I'm not convinced by that argument because, yes, there was persecution, but persecution was localized. And persecution was sporadic. It wasn't constant and it wasn't universal throughout the Roman Empire. Sometimes there were, there were pockets where persecution was not hidden within the Roman Empire. Surely Christians could have built buildings if they were supposed to do that. Uh, during those, in those places and during the times when persecution was raging, but they didn't. So to me, that's not a convincing argument. Um, in fact, it is a fact of history that the early Christians worshipped without constructing special buildings for about 250 years. That's a long time. So let's go back from, from now. All 1918, that would be the 1770. That's about when our nation was founded. It's a long time past, if you want to look at the, how long 250 years is. Um, they came in later when the church became more institutionalized, especially when Constantine supposedly was converted and he had influence over the Roman Empire and he started to allow the Christians to move into these pagan uh, shrines and buildings and they started to hold their meetings there. But the early Christians didn't know anything about that. Now we live in a day and age where it seems strange to meet in a home. The early Christians would have thought it strange to meet in anywhere else but that. There are times, 1 Corinthians 14 talks about when the whole church gathers. It's 1 Corinthians 14, I think, verse 19 or maybe 23. But it's in 1 Corinthians 14. There might be occasions when in a city you would get the, the house churches would come together. The whole church of that city would gather. And they're going to have to find a different venue to meet. They're not going to fit in anyone's home. There's going to be too many of them. So, so I, I can understand that. I, I can see that yeah, there's going to be opportunities and situations that call for some other venue of meeting. But the normal day-to-day, week-by-week gatherings of the church, from all that we can gather from our New Testament, were just simple, small home gatherings. There is an old axiom that says this, form follows function. 
don't know if you've ever heard of that. We form follows function. So we have to ask ourselves, what's the function of the church? What's the church supposed to do when it gets together? And what would be a good form for the church so that that function can actually happen? Well, a couple of the functions of the church are every member involvement and participation. Now, that's also something that's very different from, from most churches. In most churches, you have the pastor who functions in that meeting, and maybe the music minister. That's about it. We'll, we'll get into that more later in this message. But if it's true that every member is supposed to be involved in the meeting, you need a setting in which that is feasible to happen. If you have 1,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 people in a huge hall, it's going to be impossible for that to happen in that meeting. If you want a, the Lord's Supper as a full meal in your church gatherings, you need to have something where that's feasible to happen. It happens well in a house church. It's very difficult and near impossible if you start getting hundreds and thousands of people trying to do this together at one time. So, because Paul knew what he wanted the churches to look like, he, he encouraged them to meet in homes because that was a perfect setting, situation for those functions to actually be able to be carried out. So again, does it mean that it's wrong? Does it mean that it's sin for people to meet in other settings than what we find in the Bible? No, because we have no command. Again, there's no command that we're supposed to meet this way. But it does seem to me that the apostles knew what they were talking about. They, they knew what they were doing when they planted churches. And we might lose some valuable spiritual treasures if we don't look to them for our advice. In other words, we, it might be better for the church spiritually if we followed the apostolic norms of how they planted churches rather than do things whatever way we want. So just leave me to think about that. Okay, so that's where the church met. Number three, why did they meet? This also is really interesting to me because it's completely different than what I would have expected. Uh, going back to Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to, here it comes, break bread. That's the stated purpose of why they met. Now, I would have thought they would have said something like, to hear Paul preach, <laughs> or to worship the Lord, or to evangelize the lost. No, that's not the stated reason here. It's to break bread. And that's not the only place where this is stated. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 33. Paul says, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat. That's why they gathered. It was to eat. It was to break bread. To break bread in the Bible is sort of a catchphrase many times, not always, but many times for the Lord's Supper. So they were gathering together to observe the Lord's Supper and to eat. And that was the purpose of why the church gathered. Now, of course, that wasn't the only thing they did when they met. They did all kinds of things. But that was like the, the goal of the meeting, was this, this meal that they shared together. So to me, it shows me how tremendously important the Lord's Supper is in the life of the church. And it shows me how precious it ought to be to all of us. So, 
Let me just do a real short, a brief overview for you of, of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper has a, a backward look to it, a present day look, and a future look. In other words, it represents something in the past, something in the present, and something in the future. In the past, this is the one we are all aware of. 1 Corinthians 11 says, uh, as you observe the Lord's Supper, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So it pictures the Lord's death. That bread pictures the, the flesh, the body of Christ that was crucified on the cross. The, the juice or wine represents the blood. So it pictures the death of Christ, the finished workforce. So far, so good, right? That's, we're all familiar with that. But there's also a present aspect. There's a, there's a picture in the Lord's Supper about what's going on presently. That comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here, Paul is speaking about the Lord's Supper. He says in verse 16, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. The word bread here could be translated loaf as well. It's the word artos. Usually it's translated loaf. So let's just read it that way. Since there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. What that appears to be teaching us is that this one loaf is, is the picture of the unity of the church, the one body of Christ. That's why at, at the bridge we don't like to break up a bunch of crackers and put them on a, a plate because you've lost the symbolism of the one loaf, which is a picture of the one body of Christ. Now, if you break off a piece of bread, that's a good picture of you as an individual. You're part of the loaf, but you're not the whole loaf. The loaf is all of us together. So we start off with a loaf and we break it apart because that's what took place. When Christ died on the cross, his body was broken, and we find ourselves as individual members of his body. So it pictures the death of Christ in the past, the unity of the church in the present, Right? That one loaf represents the unity of God's people, the one loaf. And then it represents the marriage supper of the Lamb in the future. We know that because in Luke chapter 22, verse 16 to 18, I'm going to go back and read it to you. Okay, Luke 22, 16. Jesus said, I say to you, I shall never again eat it, that is the Passover, which became the Last Supper. I'll never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus would never again eat the Supper, which became the Lord's Supper. He's never again going to eat it until it's fulfilled. Well, what kinds of things are fulfilled? Hmm. Prophecies are, aren't they? You give a prophecy and later on, that prophecy is fulfilled. It speaks of something yet to come. So Jesus said that this supper would be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. There's coming a day in the future when the kingdom of God will come. Jesus is going to eat and drink then. And then, this, the Lord's Supper is going to be actually fulfilled. 
in that day. When we get to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, we read at the second coming of Christ, there's a gathering of all the saints, and it calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we dine with Christ. And I take this literally. I think we're going to literally eat and drink in the kingdom. We know there's we have resurrected bodies. We know we're going to be living on a new earth, right? There's no reason why this is, must be taken symbolically. Jesus will be he's the guest of honor at this huge marriage supper of the Lamb and will be present. And so whenever we take the Lord's Supper, it's like a dress rehearsal. You're getting ready for the big one, right? When you got married, we had a dress rehearsal where all of the, the Debbie and I and all of our groomsmen and maids of honor and all that stuff, we got together and we went through the ceremony to make sure we're not going to make some huge blunder on our wedding day. Well, then I, I look at the Lord's Supper Yes, it points back to the cross. It pictures the unity of the church now, but it points forward to a coming day when we're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Jesus will be there, and we're going to dine with him, eating and drinking with the Lord of glory. So the Lord's Supper is not something that we can discard easily or neglect or ignore. And to the early Christians, they gathered to break bread. And we need to take that seriously. The Lord's Supper is like the climax. <laughs> the whole service, the whole meeting is pointing and we're going towards this time where we sit down with one another and we enjoy fellowship together in Christ. And I want to encourage you to make the most of our Lord's Supper gatherings. Make the most of them. Don't just eat in silence off in a corner somewhere. Find somebody that you can fellowship with. Ask questions. Draw people out. Find out how they're doing. See how you can pray for them. Talk about the things of God that he's impressed on your heart that last week. Make it a rich spiritual time. Right. Not just any old meal that we eat any time. Of the... No, it's not like that. This is a special time for us as Christians. I would also mention that in the early church, it appears that the Lord's Supper was not just a thimble full of juice and a tiny piece of bread and that's it. It was a supper. That's why they called it the Lord's Supper. It was a meal. The first one was on a Passover. They were eating lamb. They were eating unleavened bread. They were, it was a full meal that they had sat down to. And in the early Christians, they also celebrated the Lord's Supper as a full meal. We know that from 1 Corinthians 11. Because some were hungry when they ought not have been, because others had eaten up all the food, and others were getting drunk. In other words, there was plenty of food and drink going on, they just weren't sharing it. They weren't waiting for another, one another to arrive at the meeting, and so there were abuses taking place. And apparently throughout church history, there were abuses in the meal, the agape meal, and so it was discontinued, and they simply went to taking a little bit of juice or wine and a little bit of bread, and that was how they celebrated the Lord's Supper. But originally, Jesus did not institute it that way. And so what we tried to do here is, well... We, we try to have the meal ready, and we try to go into this room and remember Christ in his death and resurrection through the bread and the cup, and then go straight into our meal. Joining those two things together as one. So, just, just to help you understand why we do what we do. There's, there's some rhyme and reason behind all of that. Okay, so that was our third question. The purpose of the early church meetings was to eat. Who's to break bread? So let's make it our purpose. When we gather, let's gather to eat, to break bread together. 
Uh, number four, what did the church do when it met? I'm just going to mention four or five things. I'll take a little bit longer on some than others. Number one, there was Bible teaching given from gifted leaders in the church. We know that from 1 Timothy 4.13, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So Timothy was expected to make sure the Scriptures were read, and that he was involved in exhorting and teaching from those Scriptures. 1 Timothy 3.2 says, One of the qualifications of an elder or an overseer is he must be able to teach. In 1 Timothy 5.17, we read of some elders that they work hard at preaching and teaching. In Titus 1.9, Paul writes to Titus, and he says, Hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that the elder will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So elders or overseers are called upon. It's their solemn responsibility to teach faithfully the Word of God. First Timothy, or no, Second Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4.1, I believe. Paul wrote to Timothy and he told him, preach the Word in season and out of season. So this is a part of the gathered church meetings. Yes, we do gather to eat, but when we gather, there's going to be the teaching and preaching from gifted leaders of the church. I don't think any of us dispute that. I think we understand that. Number two, there's going to be the ministry of spiritual gifts by everyone in the body. And that's what was going on in the early church. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. You might want to look at this one. I find it really helpful. It's 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. So Paul writes, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble... Well, here we go. Here we've got a glimpse into early church life when they assemble. When you assemble the pastor as a teaching, no, each one, isn't that interesting? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. I've got several things I want to say about this passage. When Paul describes an early church meeting, he doesn't speak of the pastor who ministers to everyone while everybody else listens passively. He speaks about the whole church getting involved in the church meeting. You see that here? Each one. And let's, let's think about the, the things that they're going to bring. A song. Well... We have 150 psalms in our Bible. Someone might bring a psalm that they have set to music and sing it for the rest of us to edify us or maybe teach us how to sing it so we can sing it together. Now today, maybe through, by extension, we could say someone has a, a musical gift and they've written a song. Why not bring that song to the assembly and sing it so that we can all be edified by that song? So musical expression was part of their, their, uh, their meetings. Secondly, they, as each one has a teaching. Now, isn't that interesting? It wasn't just the pastor who taught. As each one has a teaching. That's why I asked Olin to bring a little teaching. It was, mm -hmm. I was thinking about this verse. Mm -hmm. As each one has a teaching. If, if the Lord gives you something from the Word, share it. Share it. Share it. 
And I would speak especially to the men because First Timothy 2, 9-15 talks about the men being the ones who bring teachings. It's, it's our responsibility. So, so I just want to encourage you guys. So Oleg and Gino and Jerome, and that's all we've got today. <laughs> if you guys, if the Lord ministers to you through a word, study out that scripture, know what it means, and bring it and edify us. I'm not talking about 45 minute sermons. I'm talking about a five minute for the teacher. Kind of like what Oleg did today. Just talk for a few minutes and, and explain the scripture and help us to see what you saw from it so we can be built up. Not only that, he talks here about a revelation. I think he's probably talking about a word of prophecy. Revelation. Revelation is uh, a message given to someone spontaneously that they utter in a church meeting. So that could happen here at the bridge. If you're sitting in church and you believe that the Lord has given you a message, some kind of a word, it could be that he gives you a vision or uh, just he, he impresses upon your, your mind a particular thought, then go ahead and share it. Now the Bible says later on in this chapter that the rest are supposed to judge that. So it doesn't mean we're automatically going to accept that what you say is from the Lord. It's our job to figure that out. Is this from God or not? And so the rest need to pass judgment on that word. So if you're going to bring a prophecy, you need to be humble enough to be corrected. But you might miss it. You might say something that is not a message from the Lord. And that takes humility because nobody likes to be corrected. But we are to judge all things. So revelation, and then he says a tongue and an interpretation. Now, in the history of our church, I don't think we've ever had a public utterance in tongues. But I'm not against it. In fact, Paul says in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, do not forbid to speak in tongues. So I'm not going to forbid it. Who am I to forbid something? If the Lord puts it on someone's heart to give an utterance in tongues, well then, that's for our good. If someone does bring an utterance in tongues, it should fit the criteria of what Paul says here in this chapter. He says, if a man speaks in tongues, he doesn't speak to men, he speaks to God. So an utterance in tongues would be someone speaking to God through prayer or praise. And the interpretation would be a Godward-directed prayer or praise in a language we can understand. He also says, if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent and let him speak unto himself and to the Lord. So we have to take that into consideration as well. If someone's going to give a word of prophecy, it should be by two or at the most three. They should do it in turn. They shouldn't be interrupting each other. And um, let me just see how he puts that here. Let two or three prophets speak, let the others pass judgment. If a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one has to keep silent. In other words, he needs to wrap his prophecy up and sit down so this other guy can stand up and give his. He shouldn't hog the whole meeting time by his prophecy, give others an opportunity to speak. Notice this, 31, for you can all prophesy one by one. In other words, prophecy was not just something that the prophet was able to do. It was a fairly common gift in the early church. You can all prophesy one by one so that all can be exhorted, all can be edified. Anyway, what, what I see here is a pretty spontaneous church gathering taking place with lots of partition by the members, various people using the gifts that God has given to them to bring edification to the whole. Right. So you do have 
teaching and preaching by gifted leaders in the church, but you also have this other element of the church where there's lots of ministry going on in the body. Spiritual gifts are thriving and flourishing in that setting. We've tried to do that here by our, our sharing time, right? In between the, the singing and the preaching, we just open it up. That's your time, folks. I don't know if you realize this. That's intended and designed for you to be able to minister to one another in the church. How seriously do you take that opportunity given to you? Are you, are you thinking about that before you come on a Sunday? Are you, do you spend any time praying, Lord, would you give me something that I can bless the church with this yeah. Sunday? Because you are a priest of God, according to 1 Peter 2. Priests offer up spiritual sacrifices of praise and thanks and doing good and sharing and ministering the gift God has given to them. So, my exhortation to you is, take it seriously. If you're a priest, then act like a priest. Function as a priest. Come with something, come with a sacrifice that you're going to bless the church with on Sunday. If you're in the scriptures and God impresses something on your heart, well, maybe he would use that to bless somebody else's life. Why not share that? You say, hey, I, I was reading this, this scripture this last week and it really blessed me. I just want to share it with you today. Wouldn't it be awesome if on a Sunday, you weren't just one or two people sharing, but 10 or 15 or 20 people sharing? Well, what kind of gathering would that look like? What, what kind of edification would that look like? See, our problem, folks, is that we, we come from a background where we've attended church passively. And we're so used to that, we can't break out of it. And we need to try to do everything we can to break out of that old mentality. Church is not like going to a movie where you passively watch and expect to be entertained by somebody up there on the screen. Or going to watch a concert. Or going to watch a, a San Francisco Giants baseball game where you go and you're the spectator. We're not the spectators. We're supposed to be active on the field doing the thing. We're supposed to be involved, all of God's people, not one guy in the front, but the whole church is supposed to, according to what we can find in Scripture, ministering to one another in love. So, pray this week. Make that part of your daily prayers that the Lord would put something on your heart that could be a blessing to the rest of the church. See, we come with the mentality of, I want to get fed. Wait a minute. Well, that's fine, but God wants you to feed others, too. <laughs> if you always have the mentality, I, I, I go to this church because I really get fed there, well, that's a very selfish, self-centered position to take. Yeah. You're only thinking about yourself. What about all those other people there that need a word from God, and you might be able to give them something to help them that way? Yeah. So, please, brothers and sisters, take this seriously. Pray about it. Think it through. Ask the Lord if there's something that... He would use you in the life of the church. And, and don't just, don't just, like, never think about this again. And, oh, yeah, next Sunday, Brian told me I should be praying about this. <laughs> Make it part of your prayer life. William Barclay, who was a Scottish Bible commentator, he wrote this. The really notable thing about an early church service must have been that almost everyone came feeling that he had both the privilege and obligation of contributing something to it. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Ernest Scott, a church historian, has written this. The exercise of the spiritual gifts was thus the characteristic element in the primitive worship. 
Room was allowed in the service for the participation of all who were present. Every member was expected to contribute something of his own to the common worship. And these are just historians. They dug back into church history and they're trying to help us understand what early church worship and gatherings were all about. Now a common objection, of course, is if you do that, you're just going to open up the meeting to chaos and heresy, right? <laughs> and it, it, it's true, things could get a little chaotic. And someone could speak a false word, something that you can, you can misinterpret the scripture and share something that's a little off the wall. But pastors are not immune from sharing things that are false interpretations. Right? It, it doesn't matter if it's me speaking or if it's someone else standing up and speaking. We all have to discern whether that is true from God's word. And even if things do get a little chaotic or if heresy is uttered, that's why God has appointed elders in the church. It's their job to provide leadership to the gatherings of the church. So if the church starts to go off the wall, we're supposed to bring, reel them back in and get us back on track. And if something is said that's really harmful or destructive, we're going to have to say something about that. But no, the Bible really doesn't teach that, brother. I'm sorry, but it really teaches this thing over here. So the elders have that job to do in the gatherings of the church. Okay, so I took a lot of time on this one. This one was um, the ministry of spiritual gifts by everyone in the body. Let me just briefly mention some others. What else happened in the meetings? The church sang to the Lord. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So he's addressing the whole church, and he's telling them to sing with thankfulness to God. So I believe that singing of worship and praise was part of the early church gatherings. Number four, we've already mentioned this, but eating together was one of the activities of the early church. Number five, prayer. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to, the Greek says, the prayers. And it's talking about the prayers of the saints together, not just individual isolated prayers. But when the church comes together, the prayers were made. So prayer is part of early church, early church life to gather. So that's it. I think we've answered our four questions this morning. And I've already exhorted you. That's what I was going to do in my conclusion. I've already exhorted you guys. That's really what I want you to go away with today, thinking, how can I faithfully participate in the life and the meetings here at the bridge where God uses me and my spiritual gifts to minister to other people? Let's all be thinking about that. And let's let the Lord use us. Be available to His voice when He speaks through His Word to you. Amen? Amen. Okay. Lord, would you please take whatever is of you from, from this teaching today, press it on our hearts, let us apply it. We pray that you would make our meetings even more rich and spiritually satisfying and nourishing as, as you stir up each one, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would begin stirring hearts, Lord. And that we would find just a rich smorgasbord of a spiritual feast as we gather together each Sunday. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.